Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, April 17th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me at today's podcast, Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Cinemark, one of the largest movie exhibitors in the U.S., and they are outside of the U.S. as well. They have plans to start reopening their movie theaters in July. Chris, tell us about this. Yes, and you know this is all up in the air, but their their plan is to bring start bringing employees back uh, at the end of June, and then start slowly opening certain locations by July first. And again, this is this is what they want to happen, but it's not really up to them. It's really up to the states. You know, pretty much every state is pretty much dictating their own rules right now but you don't, you don't think by july 1st some states are going to be kind of i want to say back to normal but back to the point where you can have 50 people in a room i honestly don't know here's <laughs> i don't want to be too negative i want things to get better i want yeah. everything to open up again but here's what i think is going to happen certain states are going to try and open in may Cases are going to spike and everyone's going to close down again. That's what I really, I'm really afraid that's what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, not to get all political and stuff, but there are certain forces right now pushing to have everything open by May 1st. And some states like New York, they're not going to go for that. Other states, they probably will. And (laughs) cases are going to come, start climbing again, and everyone's going to have to shut down all over again. I I hope that doesn't happen, but I have a bad feeling that's what's going to happen. But Cinemark is really really hoping hoping that they can open by July 1st. Uh their plan is to start showing, you know, library titles, not new movies because there are no real new, new movies, <laughs> but to build up to Tenet, which has yet the Christopher Nolan movie, which is yet to move off its July release date. So this is all like everyone has their fingers crossed right now. Everyone's hoping tenants release date won't change. Everyone's hoping certain theaters will be open by July. Uh, but again, I, 
this, you know, again, I'm not trying to be negative. I really <laughs> hope this happens. I feel like I have to predicate with this because I don't want it to sound like I'm like, ha, 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 nothing will ever yeah. open again. I want things to open again. I want life to get back to normal. But I, I really, I don't see any sign of that actually happening. Like, yeah. yes, certain, the curve is starting to go down, but that's because everyone has been quarantining themselves. Yeah. Right. And the minute we stop doing that, we're going to have a problem again. So I, I don't know how this is going to play out, but you know, fingers crossed everyone. Maybe we'll <laughs> all be back to normal July 1st. I, I just want to be clear here. The head of Cinemark doesn't think that all of their movie theaters are going to reopen in July. Like he seems very like measured, e- even though, you know, you would be c- critical of this. I think he's measured in like, you know, a few movie theaters will start reopening in July. And th- th- I'm assuming those movie theaters would not be in New York, New Jersey, no, you know, no, California. It's definitely not going to be like yeah. huge areas like that. Like I could see like maybe like rural areas maybe sort of opening then. But again, I, you know, well, we're just going to have to see what happens, honestly. Yeah. You know what happens in July? It's San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, it's been happening for, what, 50 years. This is going to be the 50th year celebration of San Diego Comic-Con International. And uh, they, they've been one of the, the last, like, big conventions to, like, you know, being like, we're, we're, we might still have it. It might still happen. But today we finally heard word that it is not going to happen. Ben, tell us about it. Yes, for the first time in its 50-year history, Comic-Con will not happen in any form this year. Some organizations and and events and stuff like that have tried to transition to virtual versions of their events during this time, but the organizers of Comic-Con have essentially opted to just cancel the events altogether. Um, As you mentioned, they were one of the last big sort of holdouts. We've been, it's basically been inevitable that an in-person gathering of, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people in San Diego was not going to happen this summer. But uh, I guess, I don't know, it was still possible that maybe they could try to mount some sort of virtual version of the convention. They could maybe release some footage online or something, or maybe have like Zoom panels with, you know, film and TV stars and comic book people and stuff like that. But that is not happening. Uh, Comic-Con instead will just return uh, in July of 2021. So they're skipping this year altogether. If you've already purchased a badge, Or if you were an exhibitor who had a pass to attend, you can either request a refund or just transfer your status over to Comic-Con 2021. Um, You can go to our article at SlashMail.com and it has more details and stuff like that if you're like interested in the nitty gritty of like hotel reservations and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, the the big headline news is that Comic-Con is not happening this year. I'm, you know, this isn't surprising. I think like we were all kind of saying that this was going to happen and, uh, Comic-Con was kind of the, the only naysayer being like, no, no, it could still happen. Uh, I am a little bit disappointed that they didn't try to have some kind of online impl- implementation of this. Like, it would have been cool to, like you said, do, like, virtual panels online, have, like, an artist alley where, you know, you can go to this website and find all these, like, releases that they were going to have at Comic-Con and, like, you know, buy from these artists who, you know, are stuck at home and not – you know, they're not making the money that they would have normally made this summer. Like this is going to be hurting a lot of people's bottom lines. So that would have been a cool thing to do. And I, I know it's like a month and a half later, but uh, star Wars celebration is in August and that has not been canceled. So I guess that's the last big pop culture thing this summer uh, in terms of events that has yet to be uh, canceled. I'm wondering if that's going to be the next one. I'm, I'm guessing 
So I hope if if Celebration does cancel that they find some way to do an online implementation of, of some kind. Um, do you remember where Celebration is supposed to take place this year? Yeah, it's supposed to be in Anaheim. Uh, so okay. Anaheim, yeah. California, right next to Disneyland at the Anaheim Convention Center. And they're actually doing – or they were. They had a ticketed event like the Star Wars Night at Disneyland where you could actually, for the first time, dress up as Star Wars characters and go into Galaxy's Edge because that's normally not allowed. So uh, I'm I'm expecting, sadly, that all that's going to be canceled. But uh, maybe it's for the better. I don't know. Maybe, maybe things could turn around. Who knows? <laughs> I don't want to be completely like doom and gloom. Uh, let's talk about film festivals. Let's talk about the Cannes Film Festival. What, what is going on with Cannes, Chris? Uh, yeah. So for all <laughs> intents and purposes, Cannes is probably canceled, but they're they're sort of holding out hope. So Cannes was supposed to happen uh, in May, from May 12th through the 23rd, and. Obviously, that's not going to happen because, you know, France is on lockdown. And rather than just flat out saying, all right, we're not doing this this year, they keep saying, you know, the organizers keep saying, we want this to happen. We're still going to try and make it happen. So after the May dates got canceled, they pushed it. Uh, They didn't have actual dates in mind, but they were hoping for a late June slash early July date. But the France, the lockdown in, in France just got extended even longer. Uh, so now they're saying, you know, the, these dates aren't possible either, but they're still not officially canceling it. They're they're still trying to figure something out. Um, one thing they're definitely not going to do is go digital because they, they've said that time and time again. They just refuse to go digital. They don't think, you know, that's appropriate for this kind of festival and so on. So they're thinking maybe the fall, but again, uh, it's really up in the air and a part of me wishes they would just cancel because I'm, I'm accredited to go this year. This was going to be like my, my first year going, but I don't know what to do. Like I'm obviously not going to go buy a plane ticket and look for hotel rooms and stuff because <laughs> I have, I have no idea if this is going to happen or not. And I, I almost wish they would just be like, all right, it's not happening. See you next year. But wait, wait, wait. To... So Chris, if they said that this was actually going to happen, in wait when when do they want this to happen at this point fall fall is now the the target date so if they said this was going to happen in september would you actually go man i don't know because september is also tiff and i love tiff but i have no idea if they're going to cancel either tiff tiff has yet to make an announcement it's just like everything is so in flux right now but wait, like, wait so you're saying you, you're you're having a sophie's choice between tiff and can you would actually go to one of them like even if things have not completely calmed down man i don't know i <laughs> look i uh i don't it's so tough because i want to go i want film festivals <laughs> back you know i love going to film festivals i may not love going to regular movies with the general public but i love going to film festivals and if they're open I might risk it, you know, you know, whatever. I'm, I've had a good run. If I have to, <laughs> if I have to die to go to a film festival, I'll do it. But uh, I, I, I really don't know what's going to happen. I, I would like to think things would be slowly getting back to normal by fall, but you know, the clock is ticking. I mean, I already imagine you in a, you know, full theater annoyed by, you know, everybody talking and the theater's full and it's like kind of packed, but then you're going to be like, 
wearing your mask and your <laughs> yeah, I'll have my hazmat suit on and there'll be like skeletons all around me because people will just be dying in their seats to watch uh, the new Wes Anderson movie it'll be great it'll be a great time he died as he lived grumbling about somebody using their phone in the theater <laughs> yes <laughs> they'll be like calling 911 because they can't breathe and I'll be complaining like turn that phone off you <laughs> Okay, uh, while this whole pandemic is going on, a bunch of websites have teamed with filmmakers to hold watch parties where they kind of watch along with the film. A lot of them are like tweet parties, which I don't really like because it, it's really hard to get that much information from someone who's typing something onto Twitter. But IGN recently held one for Rogue One where they actually did kind of like an audio commentary. And Ben, you watched this whole thing and like, kind of narrow down 20 things that we learned because this was like with the writers who don't really get that much of a uh, time to do interviews when when the film was released and uh, they actually gave some incredible insight into the process and you know what who wrote what draft of you know different characters and moments and stuff like that uh, what, what are some of the cool things you learned yeah, so this video included uh, Gary Witta and Chris White, who were two of, I believe, the four credited writers on the movie. Um, and they talked a lot about the different drafts and stuff like that. Um, one of the interesting things that I thought they mentioned was here and there, they would sort of check in throughout the movie and say, oh, this is a scene that uh, Tony Gilroy worked on during reshoots. And that's one of those things that, you know, when, when Rogue One was coming out, there was all this reporting, and we talked about it and reported on it on the site, uh, about him, you know, sort of being brought in. Uh, Gareth Edwards was actually the one who directed the movie, but Gilroy was brought in late in the game to sort of rework a, a big chunk of the movie. And it was unclear to us exactly what he worked on. You know, some people had... You know, there might have been some rumblings out there about certain things, but this is like the first time I think that we've heard from people who actually worked on the production who were like openly explaining, okay, this is the a Tony Gilroy scene. And some of the ones that they mentioned were um, Cassie and Andor's introduction, which I thought was particularly interesting because I think Tony Gilroy is involved with the Cassie and Andor uh, Disney Plus TV show, uh, and and Cassian's introduction where he shoots the his informant is like a very important moment for that character and, and sort of um, sets a lot of things up for what you expect and maybe hints at what kind of guy he was in the past too. So maybe he'll get to explore that a little bit further. Um, Saw Guerrera interrogating Bodhi Rook, uh, Vader and Krennic's discussion on Mustafar, all of that stuff was reworked by Tony Gilroy. And there's a couple other ones that you can read about in the article. Um, I broke down a ton of things. Uh, the, the opening scene where, um, Ben Mendelsohn's Orson Krennic rolls up to Mads Mikkelsen's uh, farmhouse and and does the the whole interrogation kind of thing. Uh, Gary Witta talks about how that scene was a direct reference to uh, Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, which I did not pick up on at the time, but makes total sense when viewing it through that lens. He says Krennic is basically the Christoph Waltz Nazi coming in to interrogate the poor innocents who have to hide this little girl. Um, and so I, I definitely missed that. Uh, and then one other thing I wanted to, to sort of uh, highlight here is that Cassian Andor used to be a double agent uh, in earlier versions of the draft. Um, 
uh, Chris White said, for a long time he was working for the Empire. I think this uh, was rationale that I added in, but he had lost people who had been killed by Saw Gerrera. All he wanted from the Empire was the go-ahead and the ability to kill Saw rather than Galen Erso. That transmogrified along the lines after me and Gary were involved to him becoming a rebel intelligence officer who had done terrible things. So that was interesting because I never heard that before, that Cassian was was actually working for both sides and they they shot some of that material in the movie, but it ended up sort of going by the wayside, you know, as everything sort of got restructured along the way. Crazy. Well, if you don't want to listen to the whole audio commentary that is up, uh, I think we have a link in in that article. Ben has put together... 20 things that he learned, including like some alternate titles, including like, you know, why they didn't have an opening crawl and all all sorts of things. So click on his article. Oh, yes. I have a question for Ben. And I'm wondering, (laughs) based on what you've, you've heard from this, does it sound like all these alternate things would have made a better movie because I don't like Rogue One and I want to, but I remember like that, that trailer that came out was so cool. And then like, 90% 90% of the stuff in the trailer isn't even in the final film. And I've always just re- reasoned it, that's, you know, it's because of the reshoots and everything and it, all the reshoots and all the, the cobbling together made it a worse film in my mind. And I'm curious if these, these alternate things would have been better. Yeah. I'm kind of right there with you. I also do not love rogue one. I love the idea of it. I just didn't really, it, it felt in the moment, like a movie that was very cobbled together. And I think it's probably, you know, separated from the production stories and all that stuff. It's probably held up a little bit better than I would have thought, you know, sort of watching along with the movie uh, as I was sort of uh, doing this whole transcription thing and all of that stuff. I think it's tough because there are so many changes that were made. It wasn't just like a couple little pieces of surgery here and there where you can get a good sense of what the movie would have been if they had not knocked over just a couple little pieces. It's like, you know, a domino was knocked over and that completely changed the whole shape of the thing. <laughs> um, they did address some of the trailer moments. And I, I they said that there's that shot where uh, Jin is out on the platform and the TIE fighter sort of hovers down right into view in front of her. That evidently was shot, but was never actually intended to be used in the movie. It was just a trailer specific moment. Um, and I had heard that about that shot of Jin in the hallway from the trailer where the lights, you know, come up on her that Gareth Edwards just thought that was cool and, and, uh, wanted to use it for the trailer um they explain a little bit that some of the shots in the trailer of them running on the beach in slow motion with sand blowing up and them actually having the death star plans in their possession was because uh earlier drafts basically just separated two locations on scarif the planet that they were at at the end and uh they were they had to get the death star plans from one building and then run to a communications tower and then try to send it out there but over the course of the movie they just thought it was too complicated there was too many moving parts too many you know too many pieces in place there so they just condensed it down to one building so then they had to get rid of that whole uh, scene where they were running from you know from one location to the other so I think some of that footage looks so cool in the trailer and it, it sort of it's evocative and it it makes you feel like the movie could have been this huge different thing but um, it's really tough to know uh, you know yeah. what if, if one piece was changed or, or if they were able to keep certain things in how the whole shape of the movie would have changed but um, it sounds like most of the changes that they made were 
based on budget and trying to just simplify the story as much as possible. And yeah, I think for a lot of people, your mileage may vary. It sounds like Chris and I are not huge fans of that, but I know a lot of people love Rogue One. So I don't know, maybe it works better for some people than others. I will say this. It it does seem to me that a lot of the pieces of that film that people do praise, even the people that don't like the film, like, uh, you know, Cassian Andor's like scene early in the film where he kind of kills that uh, Mm -hmm. that guy or Darth Vader's scene at the very end of the film are all reshoots and all reworking. So uh, I would. I don't know. I, I do see where you're coming from, Chris, but I do. It, it does seem like there's a lot of the, the positive things that people praise about this movie seem to be coming out of the the Tony Gilroy reworking. Not to say that yeah, it's wish, a better film because of it, but it I seems. I sort of wish that we lived in a world where we could see like a middle version or something, and maybe they would have kept some of that stuff. But I, I just don't know if that would have been possible yeah. for the story they were trying to do. But I think this is fascinating because usually it is kind of like a no-no in Hollywood to say, you know, this part, you know, this was part of this guy's script and this is part of this guy. You know, like you don't come out of a writer's room and be like, oh, this was, you know, Jason Reitman's idea. Do you know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. usually a no-no <laughs> to like kind of like uh, to go into that process. So it's very interesting that they kind of like break it down in the way they do, because usually mm-hmm. writers are unwilling to talk about that on record. So uh, so maybe that's worth checking out. Anyways, uh, let's talk about some breaking news yesterday. And this is that HBO Max is, of course, teaming out with J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot. We knew that. But they have three TV series in the work that, that they have announced. And uh, two of them sound very fascinating. Uh, Chris, tell us about it. Uh Yes. Uh, the two that sound the most interesting are uh, a TV show inspired by The Shining and a TV show set in the Justice League Dark Universe. Um, the Shining show is called Overlook, which is, quote, a horror thriller series inspired by and featuring iconic characters from Stephen King's masterpiece, The Shining. Overlook explores the untold, terrifying stories of the most famous haunted hotel in American fiction. So uh, that setup where it's got iconic characters and it has a familiar location really makes it sound like um, Castle Rock, which is the Hulu show. Yeah. Uh, so, and that was also a bad robot production. So did, I wonder did, if did you like Castle be... Rock? I sort of liked it. I liked all the Easter eggs and stuff, but and I liked most of the first season. But the, the, the first season finale really like shit the bed for lack of a better term and season two just was kind of dull so i didn't i i liked it as a stephen king fan but it it could have been better um and at one oh you're gonna say i was gonna say at one point uh mark romanek was actually supposed to make a prequel to the shining called the overlook hotel and it had a, a script by glenn mazara and that felt that script was all about um like the building of the hotel, which is supposed to be built on ancient Indian burial grounds. And so that was like a prequel. This sounds like it's going to be taking place after that. I actually emailed HBO to, to get clarification if they were using this script or not. And they they said this is like a, a brand new thing. So it's not related to that, that Glenn Mazzara thing. So this isn't a prequel? It doesn't sound like it. It just sounds like it's set in the hotel. I mean, it could be like set directly before the events of the shiny but it's not gonna be a prequel in the sense where it's like that that script i mentioned it was literally a prequel in the sense that they're like they're they're still building the hotel in that script whereas this makes it sound like the hotel 
already exists. But it's also not an adaptation of the book, right? Right. Again, if I had to guess, I would say this is going from the the uh, Castle Rock angle where it takes familiar Stephen King stuff and sort of sets it in an alternate universe. Because, you know, Castle Rock had characters from Stephen King books doing things they never did in the book. So yeah. I, I think they're just using, you know, The Shining as, as a springboard to tell brand new things. Do you think that they are going to try to recreate the Kubrick sets for this. I feel like when you think of the shining and if you're going to set it in the overlook hotel, like that, that is the star of this, right? Like the, the star of this is not really the characters because you can't really have some of the characters you love from the shining. If you're not doing an adaptation. So like, is the, the direction to kind of tell stories in this creepy place? I get, yeah, I I really wonder if they are going to try to, uh, du- duplicate the Kubrick stuff. I mean, even um, Doctor Sleep did that, where you know they they rebuilt the entire sets and they recreated shots that looked exactly like the Kubrick thing. But honestly, I don't know if that's a good idea at this point because all you end up doing, even though I like Doctor Sleep, all I ended up doing when those scenes arised was I was just like, ah, that's the Kubrick thing. You just you just immediately <laughs> noticed it's them you know copying someone else's style i would rather they try something new maybe they'll set it in the terrible shining miniseries version of the hotel that had stephen weber in it which was just awful doesn't stephen uh king prefer that over the kubrick one well he wrote the script for that and (laughs) but but enough about that uh the other there's so there's two other shows the one is the justice league dark one i already mentioned um there's not a lot of details about that all we know is that it's a quote major series based on dc characters in the justice league dark universe uh justice league dark is the more supernatural justice league version where you know constantine and swamp thing are in it and for a long time uh guillermo del toro was trying to get a justice league dark movie made but that never came about and then the the third and final show is called duster which is a a crime series set in the 1970s and jj abrams and latoya morgan are co-writing it and honestly, this one sounds the least interesting to me just because I, I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> so there you have it. Elsewhere, a TV show based on the video game Mist is in development. Ben, tell us about that one. Yeah, so this has actually been in the works since uh, last year. I think um, Village Roadshow Entertainment bought the rights to Mist, which is a super, super popular uh, point-and-click adventure puzzle game that was released for the PC in the early 1990s. So some of you may remember this. Um, a lot of you, I'm sure it was probably before your time. I'm old enough to remember you know, spending hours playing this game. And it's basically the premise is it just drops you into this empty world and you had to click around and you had you had almost no context and you had to just sort of click around and learn why you were there what was going on and there's all this deep mythology embedded into it um i guess the the plan is to make a movie and a tv show and maybe more games or something like just build out this this uh intellectual property in like a huge way and now the news is that ashley edward miller who was one of the screenwriters of uh, the first thor movie and x-men first class has been hired to write the pilot and serve serve as the showrunner on the show so um 
Miller has worked on uh, Terminator, the Sarah, Con Sarah Connor Chronicles, well, wow, it's tough to say, uh, and Fringe, and um, recently he wrote an episode of the uh, TV series Lore, but he hasn't really done much in the past few years, or at least he doesn't, hasn't uh, worked on much that has been produced. Um, screenwriters are constantly working on stuff yeah. that, and maybe doing like rewrites and stuff that just doesn't get made. So um, his list of credits is not huge, but I think that that doesn't necessarily mean that he's been like taking a break between, you know, since 2013 or, or something like that. So um, <laughs> I, I, I liked the projects that he's, he's worked on so far, generally speaking. So um, I'm just interested to see how anybody is able to sort of um, coalesce the deep, ridiculous mythology of mist into a show that uh, is popular and, and makes a lot of sense for modern audiences. I remember, uh, after high school, I was working at Computer City, which is was a big retail store that sold computers. It was owned by the company that owned Radio Shack. And uh, I was there the day that the Mist sequel Riven came out. And oh I my knew... God, I spent so long playing Riven. <laughs> it was like my favorite game for so long. And I worked the register at Computer City and was later customer service, whatever. Um, and there was never, you know... It was Computer City. People were there to buy computers. And at the time, computers were not something that everybody had. It was not that exciting. So it, there was never really excitement around Computer City. But I came to work that day, and there was like a long line outside the Computer City. And I, I was like, what is this Riven? I had never heard of Mist before. I'd never played it. Uh, so I ended up buying Riven and getting totally sucked in. The, like The, the Mist series is interesting in, in two ways, I think. Number one, it was kind of like escape rooms before there were escape rooms because you're going around doing all these puzzles, trying to escape this island or, you know, explore this island. And, and number two, it kind of had that mystery element that Lost had. And I'm kind of surprised that it's taken Hollywood this long to kind of get something going in the Mist universe because if it like the, with the success of Lost, uh, you know, over a decade ago, I, I would have thought that someone would have jumped on this. Uh, Chris, had, had, did you ever try any of the missed games? No, I never, I never played those games. The only real games I had on my computer were like Duke Nukem. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> like I had like odd world. Remember that game? Yeah. Oddworld, where there's, the little you know, green creatures. That. Yeah. And they like stuck their tongue. It was a really disgusting game. They're like farting all the time. Why did that exist? I don't know. Oh, and I had <laughs> Steven Spielberg's director's chair, which was awesome. Oh, that was good. I and that was it. Those are my games. I completely forgot that that exists. Why don't they remake that? That would, I mean. They should. And also my computer was so old, it couldn't handle the game. So <laughs> it got to a point, like there's a point where after you shoot your movie, you're supposed to like render it. And my, my computer could never finish the game. So I never got to see my final film. Oh, what a tragedy. <laughs> I know. It's, I've been chasing it my whole life. It's my white whale. <laughs> okay that, that is so sad that is the the chris evangelist origin story that's right now you know why i'm like this it's all because of steven spielberg's director's chair <laughs> okay let, let's move on to another sad story this one is of darren aronofsky's batman movie which uh you know i always like to like imagine what would a Darren Aronofsky Batman movie look like it was supposed to start walking Phoenix. And apparently that's the reason why it didn't get made. Chris, tell us about it. 
Yeah, so before Christopher Nolan rebooted Batman, uh, Darren Aronofsky was trying to make a movie based on uh, Batman Year One, and he wanted to make it like a gritty 70s French Connection style movie. And apparently uh, in a new interview, he revealed that he really wanted Joaquin Phoenix, who of course would later play the Joker, to play Batman. And the studio wanted Freddie Prinze Jr., and in this quote from Aronofsky, he says, I remember thinking, uh-oh, we're making two different films here. It was a different time. The Batman I wrote was definitely a way different type of take <laughs> than they ended up making. So, uh, you know, it sounded like the studio wanted a more traditional uh, blockbuster Batman and Darren Aronofsky was going for something different. And of course, something different is eventually what we got because Nolan's Batman was much different and ushered in this whole new era of quote-unquote realistic comic book movies but at the time Darren Aronofsky was trying to make this I think he really wanted to make it like this hard R you know very violent gritty take on year one and at the time the studio didn't go for it and of course years later we got Joker which is a hard R comic book movie so starring Joaquin Phoenix and it's become what one of the biggest films that has ever been released by Warner Brothers Maybe. Yeah, so that that shows you how how the times had changed drastically. So Darren Aronofsky ahead of his time, as always. Uh, lastly, we have this story about Steven Spielberg. He may have saved a fan favorite alien in the latest Star Wars movie. Ben, what do we know? Yes, so Neil Scanlon, who is the creature and special makeup effects creative supervisor for most of the new, actually, I think all of the new Star Wars movies since uh, Force Awakens, um, has been going around and doing a lot of interviews uh, for The Rise of Skywalker, and he and uh, his team actually uh, told Empire, I'll read his quote here, it could be a rumor, but I believe J.J. Abrams screened the movie for Steven Spielberg, and at the end, Spielberg said, what happened to Babu Frick? Everybody thought, oh, God, what did happen to Babu? So evidently people just sort of forgot about him, and he was not in the very end of the movie because as uh, Rise of Skywalker exists in its current form, Babu Frick pops up in Zori Bliss's ship at the very end of the movie, uh, and he, you know, pops up and and sort of does his little catchphrase noise and everybody goes crazy because everybody loves Babu Frick. Um, But evidently that was not in there originally, and the, the team at ILM found a another sequence that they had shot of that character and then just lifted out Babu Frick from it and put him like inserted him digitally into sorry Belos's <laughs> ship at the end and it looks like Steven Spielberg was the one who uh, inspired that by just asking what the hell happened to this guy and uh, I think he he ended up saving the character and you know as we know uh, that could that decision could have like huge ripple effects throughout the entire you know Star Wars larger universe. <laughs> Maybe not the movies, but like you know books and comics and spinoffs and all that kind of stuff. Like that character existing now could drastically change uh, the way that things work. So uh, I guess if that happens and you're a huge Babu Frick fan, you have Steven Spielberg to thank for it. Yeah, and I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but his planet, the planet that him and Zori were from, uh, Kajimi, or were not from, but they lived on, uh, was blown up. So, you know, they they would have been dead if they didn't show up at the end of that movie. I know even uh, the most, the people that hate Rise of Skywalker the most love Babu Frick, except for our own Chris Evangelista, who hates everything. Chris, why do you hate Babu Frick? <laughs> I do not hate everything i just I, I i don't care about babu frick he doesn't do anything for me and i feel like that ending is a real cheat because it i believe this story because it really does feel like an after the fact thing where he's yeah. just like oh he's just in the cockpit meanwhile like 
that planet had like children on it. It's like no one cares about them. Like they're all dead as long as this puppet survives. We didn't see Get the a- children. We didn't see the Look. people of the planet. So it, they don't matter. I mean, we saw John so, Williams, there, but. Th- were there only like two people on this entire planet? There was Carrie Russell <laughs> and Babu Frick, and that was it. Hey. They were the only they inhabited the uh, whole planet. They're, they're, they're the only people we know about. They're the only people we care about. Uh, no, I, I will say this. Like, and, and, Chris, how dare you question Steven Spielberg and, and his decision to save Babu Frick? I mean, Steven Spielberg is your god. Listen, if his goddamn computer game had worked for me, maybe I wouldn't <laughs> be questioning him right now. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, I, I will say this, that I love Babu Frick. I love The Rise of Skywalker. I love that Babu Frick is alive. I do think that moment feels weird and it does feel like it was put together in post so uh you know i'm of two minds here i'm glad that he's alive that way eventually we can get babu frick a star wars story so maybe someday (laughs) yeah even even shirley henderson who like did the performance and the the vocal and stuff for the puppet character she didn't even think that babu was gonna make it and she was sort of surprised i think to to discover that he had been inserted digitally into the end so yeah okay you can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, published on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will see you on Monday. If you and your team want to cut down on busy work and get more choice and control over accounts payable, you need Bill. Bill Accounts Payable is your secret weapon for saving time on AP. And with a special offer at bill.com slash podcast, you'll save money too. With Bill, streamline your entire AP process, including bill creation, approvals, and payments. You can pay with ACH, credit card, check, and international wire transfer. Plus, you can easily integrate with most accounting software. No wonder hundreds of thousands of businesses are already using Bill to manage their AP. Schedule a free demo now to see how Bill can automate your financial operations. And right now, Get 15% off when you subscribe to Bill Accounts Payable. There's never been a better time to sign up. This special offer is available for a limited time only at bill.com slash podcast. Terms apply. See bill.com slash podcast for details.